Hello, everyone. It's Greg Bendian, and welcome back to the podcast where we have interesting discussions with interesting musicians, creative people who are doing their own thing and have had an impact on really the history of music and different genres coming together to form new forms of music. And today we have a, a really special guest who I'm so pleased to have on the program. Uh, last time out, you'll recall, we had Narda Michael Walden. Well, today we have Mr. Ralph Armstrong <laughs> on the program. He's a bass player extraordinaire, but he's also a singer and a songwriter and this all-around uh, incredible musician. Man. And uh, I'm so pleased to have him. He's a Michigander by birth, but he's a planetary citizen in That's life. Right. <laughs> Welcome, Ralph. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, Greg. It's getting busy finally after a disastrous two years, but everything's good. Yeah, doing pretty good. So happy to hear that. You know, I thought we could sort of look back at some things and, and talk about what you're up to these days and cover some ground in, in the time we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that you're you're very proud of your, your musical upbringing, and I know people would love to hear about those early experiences. Oh, wow. Well, you know, my dad was a uh, violinist. His name was Howard Armstrong, and his uh, stage name was Louis Bluey. And uh, he was from, uh, actually born in Dayton, Tennessee, raised in La Folla, which is about, oh, 50 miles west of Knoxville, Tennessee. And he played around, you know, cold country, and he played with Lester Flats and Earl Scruggs and Minnie Pearl and String Bean. And I played with String Bean when I was like 14 years old with my father. You know, they they were raised in the same neck of the woods up in uh, eastern Tennessee. And uh, my dad, he uh, had a lot of uh, famous friends that would come by, like Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry. They would come in like on a 10 o'clock at night on a fr Friday from Chicago and stay up to five in the morning drinking scotch and milk. <laughs> Those guys. That's what they drank? Yeah, scotch and milk. Well, they had ulcers. They couldn't drink all the drink and they had to put milk with it. You know, so I had a wonderful uh, childhood, you know, because most of my relatives uh, from the Armstrong family were all musicians. Even my uh, aunt, Robbie, played the guitar. You know, everybody played. My Uncle Roland played the bass. And my Uncle L.C., Lee Crockett, who was my mentor, he was the first person I ever saw play a bass violin. And after I saw him do that, I wanted to play the bass myself because I could never get a tone out of the violin. It was terrible, just squeaky and I hated it. My dad, oh, I want you to play the violin, play the violin. I hate it, I was crying, Ooh, you know, that squeaky sound. So when I saw my uncle play the double bass, he had a golden K bass. It was made probably in the late forties or early fifties. And it just had to sound and just swept me away. I just wanted to play the bass. And that's the rest of this history. And then I've been blessed to have great teachers in my life, like Ron Carter, who mentored me, and uh, James Jamerson, who was another mentor, who I saw play many, many times. And he sat me down and explained a lot of things to me about the technique of the bass. I'd be very curious to hear uh, anything that was passed on to you from Ron Carter. 
Uh, what was passed on to me from Ron Carter? What's, what was some of the knowledge that you gained from being in the presence of the great Ron Carter? Oh, man, it's, it's that the left hand is paramount to getting a sound, the tone. And that uh, technique is paramount in becoming a great player. And he made me practice the tetrachord, the eight-tone scale, over and over. I think it was like 182 times. <laughs> I can't. Over and over and over and over. Then he played heavy, played in C, played in C sharp, played in D. And he played, made me play it until I got a tone, a musical sound out of it. And that's one of the great things I learned from Ron. And uh, uh, another thing, adjusting the bass so it sounds, you know, the double bass, so it sounds musical. You know, he was a disciplinary, especially in your left-hand technique, which I see a lot of players today who have very poor technique and they don't seem to understand the value of it. You know, just like my dear friend, Stanley Clark, his technique is impeccable. Stanley's a master, you know, and that comes from Yosef Habib's 1870, who was a professor at the University of Prague who invented the positions for the base. And his student was Franz Samando. So that's one for you base students. And this Samando concerto, right? Uh, he wrote a, a few concertos, but he had a couple of books, Franz did, you know, but the best book is, uh, is the uh, Adolf Loiter with uh, Yosef Abid, he explains the technique, the one, two, four, the positions and how to execute the vibrato in the correct manner. So you're a rare, a rare case of a person that makes a transition from uh, an acoustic fretless instrument to an electric fretless instrument? Not really, no. I was one of the first to do it because James Jamerson introduced me to the fretless bass. And that's the reason he said, I'm gonna teach you, you sit down here, I'm gonna teach you about the fretless bass, why I can play the fretless bass. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. And he explained the technique, you know, how, you know, that, that you have to, keep your second finger and thumb in line and, you know, play on the tips. And he was a master player, Jameson. And he believed that he was very similar to Ron Carter, but very similar to Ray Brown. That's the concept he came from, just getting the note out of the bass. He didn't want to hear funny sounds. And you play the bass. I want you to hear the bass speak. You play a tone, make it rich and deep. And I tried to teach Michael Henderson to play the bass. He crazy, play the bass like the jelly. And the flute, you know, he's he's eccentric, you know. <laughs> but he was a wonderful guy, man. Wonderful guy. I saw Jamerson play a lot of music, man. I saw him play with big bands. I saw him play with Yusuf Latif. He could swing his behind off. And that's something that really rattles me. I mean, excuse me for going off into Jamerson real quick. No, please. Is that everybody wants to talk about this equipment, it's the bass. I heard Jamerson play on a Hoffner Beetle bass. Sound like James Jamerson. I never forget, he had just left the uh, Olympia Theater with Marvin Gaye. He came in and had a brown leather suit on, two tall. We were at the Mozambique, me, Carolyn Franklin, Pistol Allen, and Jameson said, I, I play this bass. I put on my chin and play it. He was just playing the, he was playing the shit out of it. A little bitty Paul McCartney Beatle bass, play the hell out of it. So they need to stop all of that. It's the amp, it's the trying to get the sound, the strength. That's the biggest bunch of BS ever made from any person is the strings. Look, it's not the strings, it's the left hand. 
that I saw him play on. And another thing too, a lot of people don't know this. And it's was something else that pisses me off that Jamerson also recorded for those dummies that don't know this and don't ask people from Detroit. His other bass was what? A Rick? What was it? No, he never touched a Rickenbacker. That's one bass I have not yet to own. The only one I played on was Rick James' bass. I liked it. I need to, but I'm going to buy one before I leave here. It, it does um, a certain job, right? But guess what bass it was? He recorded with the bass. It was a Ampeg fretless. Ampeg. He had two of them. The one he had was the deluxe model with the two pickups. It looked like a harp. It looked like a harp and it had a scroll. Oh, yeah. That was one of the last ones. That was That's the top of the time. Name of he had that one, and then he had a, a regular one that was kind of like a guitar shape. Like and was was there anything going on uh, technique wise that was unique to him? Yeah, he played Joseph Beats, eighteen seventy. The concept one, two, and four shifted position. He played it like a double bass. He was into the the science of the left hand, you know, and that's what what he did. And I'm gonna tell you something else. If you hear this song, a lot of people, a lot of people try to claim this song, and it's BS. And it's a song made by Stevie Wonder. It's called "I Was Made to Love." Her. And on that song, if you listen to it thoroughly, just listen to it, you can hear Jameson playing the Ampeg fretless bass. Check it out. Listen to the tone of that bass. That's the Ampeg. Yeah, so enough of Jameson. I could talk for five hours about him. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, we don't get a lot of bassists on the program, but I'm always interested as a producer in knowing about gear and how it affects sound and how sound mm -hmm. affects how the music falls together. You know, the difference between Alfonso with Weather Report and Jocko with Weather Report, all of this kind of stuff. The difference with you with Mahavishnu and Rick Laird with Mahavishnu. Mm -hmm. Because you took a much more prominent role in the bass chair when you yeah he had me play a lot of the uh john had me play a lot of the orchestral parts with the strings you know broken dominant chords and oh he had me play all kind of stuff man he was he was a scientist he is a scientist you know him and miles man you know i work with miles miles for something else well, and you were quite young when you hooked up with Mahavishnu, right? I was 17 years old. Is that right? Yeah. Actually, John took me out of high school. <laughs> My mother let me go because I was making more money than a principal. <laughs> she said, you go on and you go back to school, you come back. <laughs> you know, I was making like 30 grand at 17. So, so you were busy when Apocalypse came out, right? That band was moving around. Oh, we traveled, uh, Jesus Christ, we traveled nine months a year. It was crazy. And it was a large group. Yes, it was. It was a wonderful, wonderful group. Everything was uh, pretty much first class. We we were just treated royally. That, that was the day when the recording companies really cared about the artists and put had huge budgets and you know, they spared no expense. They treated CBS uh, back then was fantastic. Yeah, that was a golden era that you were a part mm -hmm. of. 
Um, yeah, we had a good we had a good manager too. His name was Nat Weiss, Nathan Weiss. He was an excellent uh, man, and he was a uh, you know I can say this so far, he was an honest man. And that's something because he set up my copyright, and uh, there's still always some issues that you know I was young in the day I could go back and try to correct, but to this day I own my work. And uh, people have tried to take it and use it, and then they can't because I own it. No, yeah. I understand you were in that. Now that you mention it, we should probably say that uh, didn't Massive Attack Ill illegally um, download some of your illegally uh, sample your music? They sampled it to couldn't be sampled no more. And what's so crazy about it? It was used in a motion picture slip. It was used in tons of commercials. There's still, I still gotta litigate with some more people. It was, it's crazy. It's, it's just, it was used like I had to uh, 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 send letters to 130 companies. It was used in Adidas commercials, all sorts of commercials. VH1, German soap operas, Zilby Kawas in Germany. It's just crazy. My first time in Tel Aviv, I get to Tel Aviv and I'm sleeping. And it's almost the same scenario. And I'm, I'm watching VH1 and I'm listening. And, I'm like, huh. and then I hear this music. I said, wait, that sounds familiar. And it's me. I'm playing in Israel, singing on the commercials. And that's just one incident. I don't know what it is when I fall asleep. I just end up hearing myself on some late night, you know, commercial or some stuff, you know. But, but presumably, you know, keeps keeps the checks coming in. Oh yeah, excuse me, I get some water. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, it's more than a check. It's you know when they use it illegally, it comes to be a uh, litigation. Well, that could could end up with another check. So. Yeah, that's right. The real money. <laughs> that's right. You ain't kidding. So that's so great. W were you intimidated the first time you played with John McLaughlin? No, he wasn't intimidated. No, not at all. Because he was, a, you know, to this day, he's a warm human being. He was warm. He was very friendly. You know, just, you know, he worked us to death. You know, we worked, but we got paid for it. You know, we rehearsed. And uh, what were, what were I can't we say there is not one word negative I can say about John McLaughlin. I love him with all my heart. There's not no nothing every time we play he never he was he's like miles he wants you to play he's like aretha you gotta play you know but you know we played we never we had a good time this i have no not one negative or salty thing to say about that group nothing it was all wonderful and i love john from the bottom of my heart nothing now, now i don't wonderful. know if you knew this, but but my group, the Mahavishnu Project, performed the Emerald Beyond album all the way from start to finish as a suite with the full ensemble. And we made a record of it called Return to the Emerald Beyond. So mm -hmm. I have a, a kind of unique association with, with what, 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 what would have to go into making such a large endeavor a success. And, you know, we took it on the road and, and we recorded the album live. And to me, it's such an incredible chamber ensemble, isn't it, Ralph Armstrong? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's like he wrote the orchestrations 
you know, and he included the electric bass, which I thought was very unique into compositions. I'm going to tell you something. If I didn't go to interlocking, uh, have not been a student of the National Music Camp, I don't think uh, I could have played that music. How many because years did you do interlocking? Three years. And uh, who was there? I, uh, who was there? Shit, a lot of great classical musicians from all over the country, some from even Germany, everywhere. But the thing is, I had some great teachers like Robert Warner, principal of Seattle Symphony. And my teacher today, who's still alive, it lives in Traverse City. He's about 97 years old. He's still teaching, too. It's, so real. it's really strange. His name is Larry Hurst. He was the first classical teacher that did not scare the P-I-S-S -S out of him. He's a wonderful guy, and he's still teaching, and he's teaching one of my students right now. That's great. Yep. So that music, you have to have technique to play that music. That's not ordinary music for no. a bass play. You have to have some kind of classical background. And trust me, in order to play, be a good traditional jazz bass player, you have to have a classical background. You have to have some kind of formal training. Isn't it interesting that time after time after time, the bass players that are important in jazz and in rock have had some classical training, like Jack Bruce, for instance, went to the Royal Academy. That's right. Yeah. And it's that's well, the bass is a religious instrument. It has a uh, a hell of a past. You know, Gregorian chants were written for the bass. Monks would pray with the bass. The bass, the vial goes back, you know, close to 900 years. You know, it was before the piano. It was before the organ. The only other instrument I would, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty close to it. That's old as the bass, the vial itself. It could be the drum. Because it goes back. That's why it has a scroll at the top. Because that the scroll, they would read the uh, the chanting, the chants, and it would have the scroll. That's why they incorporated it into the science of the construction of the instrument. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, especially when you learn about uh, makers such as Gaspari Desolo from Brescia, fifteen forty-two, who was the earliest bass maker of record who was a scientist, he made bases that were 12 feet tall. You know, he made them small, he made them five string, he made them eight string, six strings, you know. People tickle me when they see a six string bass. I don't hear that string Man, that shit's been around for a thousand years. At least, well, at least 500, let me be real with you. But it's, it's funny, we've had these six string instruments for years, the loans. Has the tuning system been standard over that amount of time or did that? No, no, no. Each country had their own tuning. Each country. Actually, the Germans perfected the bass as we have it today, the contrabass. They added the fourth string on it. In 1778, Carl Ludwig Bachmann designed the hat peg, which is the knobs that you see on these old basses that stick out at the top. Those are called hat pegs. And it was from order of the King of Prussia, he designed the apparatus. He was a blacksmith to tune the double bass because in the, uh, you know, in the, a Prussian opera orchestra was taking the basses too long. And also at that time, they added 
the fourth string in 1778. And it it became the contrabass. As you can look it up, bass players going. I don't know about the internet. The internet is so bad. It's only as good as what people put on it. You know, you have to find Elgar books or go to the library at Oxford University somewhere. Now you're putting out knowledge on the internet right now, Ralph Armstrong. So it's, oh it's, yeah, because I'm old now. Well, <laughs> I still and, you, and you're smart, <laughs> and you have you have a love for the for the music and for the instrument, and that's just so, oh, de- so wonderful. Definitely, man. Definitely. You know, I I grew up with Mahavishnu in a very real way. Uh, my older uncle was only seven seven years older than me, and he was going to see Mahavishnu and re- all the bands play. So we had Birds of Fire on 8-track when I was 10 years old. Wow. And when Apocalypse came out, it, it was fresh off the presses under the Christmas tree that year. Oh, my goodness. I remember all of that, you know. That was the, my Christmas present in December 74. Wow. That's when I joined, uh, John, uh, in... Uh... I think it was January of 74. What was the the uh, experience like working with George Martin and the uh, the crew over at the London Symphony? Oh, George Martin was wonderful. It was, uh, you know, I guess part of my, you know, my name is English Armstrong. And uh, I was treated wonderfully by this man. And I was just a kid and we went to dinner every other night in London, you know, and we had, I mean, I, I, I've lived uh, as a kid, like a rock star kind of life. You know, we would have Daimler's pick us up, and, you know, the Vanden Plaus, Ralph, Ralph, we got the Vanden Plaus, pick us up, we're going to, to, to the speakeasy. But I would tell you, you know who befriended me? Oh, wait a minute, I'm changing something. No, let me finish with George first. George was just a wonderful human being, man. I mean, it wasn't an arrogant bone. He was an intellectual. And he always tried his Ralph, well, just try this on the bass. So he was a little more sound on the, on the E. He knew about notes. He knew music. He was excellent. That's why he's Sir George Martin. And the thing I loved about him so much as a little black kid coming from Detroit, he treated me just wonderfully there was no nasty no arrogance i ate with this man every damn night we stayed in london for almost two months doing that and we ate and i stayed at the churchill hotel which had marble tables and gold lamps and you know all i did was sign for food you know i didn't have to pay a, a pound a shilling or nothing for anything you know, but George Martin was a wonderful, wonderful man. And now, you know who befriended me in London. But wait, before we jump off George Martin, I wanted to ask you, have you seen the George Martin Dick documentary where he singles out Smile of the Beyond as one of the greatest things he's ever done? I did see that. I did see that. Clip. Very moving. John <laughs> talks about it for a second, and then he's listening to Smile of the Beyond, and he goes... Yeah, this was really something. You remember that? Right. And also, I met one of the great classical bass players who played on that recording. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of people don't know that Eugene Kraft, the great 
classical bass player play on that recording. And he, and I played, I played some orchestral parts with him. And he what, was- What, what did you play orchestral parts on? Uh, it was, I can't, you know, I played on some of What is ba ba the beginning, boom ba 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 Da da the beginning of visions of the emerald be that ba 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 please let me let me finish I recorded it ba 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 I played on that part with Eugene Kraft and Eugene Kraft was the originator and the writer of the Oxford textbook for the bass check that out bass players that is the best bass book ever written as far as I'm concerned. And Eugene Kraft was a wonderful guy. He was smoking a cigar <laughs> doing the session ashes. And what was so unique, and this is what I tell musicians, you know, bass players have to understand one thing. This is something I learned from Ron Carter and James Jameson. I, I have instrument, I, I'm looking, my bass is in this case. It's, it's about close to $30,000 instrument. It's a Steiner Maiden Copeland's 1847. Okay, it's a master sounding instrument. But I have another bass that I don't even like the company that sounds like a million dollars. It's not about the wood. It's not about all this other stuff. It's how it sounds. And on that session, Eugene Kraft was playing a K bass <laughs> made in Indiana. Was it Elkhart, Indiana? on that session. And he has a Gennaro Galliano bass that's worth like, you know, today worth like a couple hundred thousand dollars. But on that session, he played a game. I like the sound of this Yank bass. It's got the big rubber sound, yeah. That's what kills me with, that's the same, same thing that happens with Jamerson. It's always about the instrument. Oh, you gotta have this. No, you don't gotta have it. If it sounds good, it sounds good. Let me ask you this, Ralph Armstrong, as, as a composer who uh, I myself have written a lot of music for the contrabass, pizzicato, and arco, how important is the bow? Look at how important in it. Are you serious? I'm going to treat you like Miles Davis. I'm sorry, I'm messing with you right now. But see, to me, if you're playing the double bass, and that's what I get on my students, it's bullshit. If you don't use a bow, in order to tune the instrument, you have to tune it correctly in harmonics, starting at the fourth position on the D string where the A is. And then you hit the A harmonic on the seventh position of the A string. You start tuning the second string first in the fourth position and use the bow. And I use the bow. I have solo. I've recorded, you know, with Earl Clue. I've done all kinds of solos and recordings with the bow, man. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your acoustic career recordings, because I think a lot of people associate with Jean-Luc and Ma Vishnu, but I'm real curious. Well, I've that. done more than those guys. That's like old. I've worked, you know, I've, I've played, um, oh my God. Man, I play, you know, I play with Santana. I play with Zappa. I played with Herbie Hancock. Um, I recorded Curtis Mayfield's last recording. 
New World Order. I recorded with Aretha. I worked with her for 35 years. I did uh, her So Damn Happy, You Are My Joy. And now going back to your question, I played with some of the great jazz artists in the world. My dear friend was Milt Jackson, the vibraphonist. I recorded with Eddie Harris. I did Ampidextrous. It's uh, the prelude to Freedom Jazz Dance called Mean Greens. I recorded that in Munster, Holland. And nothing with Sherman Ferguson and the great Sherman Ferguson from Philly on the drums. And um, I've worked with uh, Kenny Burrell. I worked with the Dean of Detroit piano players and traveled on the road with him. His name is Tommy Flanagan. I worked with the great Hack. Uh, a lot of people don't know his uh, real name. His name is Roland Hanna. I recorded with uh, Charles McPherson, uh, saxophonist who worked with Clint Eastwood, uh, Curtis Fuller. I played with Thad Jones. Oh man, just, I've been so blessed. Uh, I played with Buddy Rich one night, the bass player quit. <laughs> that was funny. And I was happy. I happened to be the house bass player at the Hyatt Regency. And, and Buddy told John Trudeau, he said, get the black dude. Where's the black dude to play the bass? Get him, where's he at? And me and him got along great, man. I worked with J.C. Hurd, great jazz drummer. Wow. Um, I can just go on a Bradford Marcellus. Oh man, I've been, I've played with everybody you think of. Uh, oh, I'll tell you who really um, was a master musician I played with. And his name was Blue Mitchell, who discovered Chick Corea. Blue Mitchell, I worked with Blue Trumpeter, Blue Mitchell. Oh God, Harold Land, Houston person. Man, just, just so many. Uh, Grady Tate, I don't know if you remember Grady Tate, the drummer. He was one of my role models. I worked with Grady many times, you know, sack full of dreams. Uh, I tell you who else. Uh, wait, let me finish, huh? I still use Grady Tate's brushes that he designed. Oh, okay. Well, I ain't special brushes. I was I, thinking about Gloria Lynn I worked with. The great Gloria Lynn. Oh, man, just so many. I worked with Diane Carroll, you know, Vic Damone, you know, Henny Youngman. I've done a lot of Broadway stuff. Al Martino. You know, I, I, I loved Al Martino. He was one of the coolest guys I ever met, man. He would say, oh, the band sounds good enough. Go eat. You know, it's like we, know, we had like another hour left. He stopped the band. And I tell you who else I worked with for years. A lot of people don't know this. And I have all of his memorabilia, all of his records, all of his books, and they're signed and autographed to me. And that's the great Steve Allen, who was one of the first to do the Tonight Show, the pianist. So I've worked, I've worked all sorts of genres of music, you know. And, you know, like, I, oh, I forgot now, I gotta go wrestle. See, we jumped over from George Martin. I'm gonna tell you who befriended me in London, who was picked me up every other night we hung out on the scene. That was Jeff Beck. <laughs> We've been friends for like 40 years, man. I love that cat. He's intense. He will come get me in a little deuce coupe, yellow. And we be riding around with these potato chip doors and I'm hanging with Ronnie Woods, and Keith Richards, all the stones at the speakeasy every night. And I had my London red boots on hanging out on the scene. <laughs> you know, he was speed with it. Man, Jeff Beck is, is just a great musician and a great uh, guitar. So he's playing a lot of guitar, a lot of guitar. Singular voice on the instrument. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His own technique. Yeah, I would say so. I, you know, I'm not a guitar aficionado, but he has a very warm sound. Warm sound. Great, great human being too. That's so great that you got to hang <laughs> with him. Oh yeah, and his manager, uh, what was his name? Um, Ralph Baker. So English, you know, I had, I spent a lot of time in London. I love going to London because like people are just warm there. They they they're different, you know. They're warm. British people are wonderful people. Yeah, they are warm. It's 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 mm -hmm. London is a great place. Mm -hmm. There's so much to offer there. So much best best Indian food I ever had was in London. Oh yeah, oh well, that's you know, <laughs> like that's a little India. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Well, Ralph Armstrong, what what are you doing these days? What's what's your next gig? Uh, well, I'm working, uh, you know, since this pandemic, I've been artist of residence at a jazz club called Baker's Keyboard, which is the oldest jazz club in the world. And that's where I played with, uh, you know, Curtis Fuller and Kenny Burrell and George Benson. And I'm doing that every Friday and Saturday till I get back to traveling. I was working in Australia a lot at Bird's Basement. I was doing a lot of stuff over in Australia. And, um, uh, I'm teaching at uh, Cass Tech uh, High School, which I went there, my alma mater, and Ron Carter's alma mater, Paul Chambers' alma mater, Kenny Burrell's alma mater, Curtis Fuller's, uh, Major Holly's alma mater, Jerry Allen. It's just crazy, man, all the musicians that came out of Cass. Just crazy. But I've been blessed, you know, working. Matter of fact, I just finished my book. I just did a book on Aretha Franklin. And it's called My Friend the Queen. And that's going to be really something. So tell me about working with her, because Narada told me some stories, and I'm sure you have some stories about just, just what a powerful artist she was. Well, Aretha was a lot like Miles Davis. When she didn't use you, it wasn't personal. When I was not working with her, she would call me to her parties. I was her friend. We were friends. She even told me why I was her friend. She said to me, you know, you're crazy and you're not scary like everybody else. You know, she didn't like scary people. You know, you treated her like, you know, somebody you've know, known for many years, you know. She didn't want to, you come, oh, your majesty. And she would do, she would walk away from me, you know. She's a wonderful person. I do have my book. If I could show you the cover. Oh, wow. And it's called My Friend the Queen. From Read her to Chester. You were, so you, you were able to get her to laugh and that was your friendship? Well, no, not just that. You know, I've been knowing the family. Her sister, this is a back cover. That's great, Ralph. That's at the Mohegan Sun Casino, uh, New Year's 2016, um, New Year's Eve. Uh, the thing was, you know, I was a friend of the family, too, because her sister was the first person, Carolyn, that I ever played electric bass for in my life. Ah. She would take me to Big Mama's house, and we would sit there, and she would teach me songs. She would write songs. So it's like I was a friend of the family, you know, just just great, you know, a lot of great memories and 
A lot, of, a lot of funny stories. You know, we worked together. We did Curtis Mayfield's last recording. So what was it like working with Curtis? Because I saw his last concert. I was I was there uh, when the, the incident happened. Are you serious? Oh, my God. So Man, Curtis, I, saw him in, I saw him in London at Ronnie Scott's as well. So I, I saw him at his peak. Uh, what well, was that like? He was so great. We uh, we did the tracks, and Curtis was not able to make it, so we did like a uh, what was it a computer thing, you know, video, and he was sitting in a wheelchair with his head up, but he was uh, he was in good spirits, you know. And that recording, we talk about that in the book. I'm going to show you just this one. Oh wow, that's lovely. That's me and Narda and the great Dennis Edwards. That's at the Ritz in New York. That's great. We had a great time. And here's a back page. These are my pictures, too. Yeah, yeah, it ain't the greatest quality, but these are memories that you can't find. And a lot of funny stories. And I'm going to tell you one story, one uh, (laughs) chapter out of the book. We were doing the Curtis uh, New World Order recording. And, you know, I work with Miles. I was so honored to be picked to play with Miles Davis. When did you work with Miles? I worked with Miles in 1977. What was the gig? There was no gig because Miles had a car accident. So. And broke his leg. Okay. Okay. Stayed out of music for eight years. I was, Marcus Miller came after me. What happened, me, Reggie, Pete, Cozy, we were rehearsing music. I went rehearse with Miles in New York. We were going to Montreux, Switzerland. I even got the plane ticket still. Is Ndugu, who's on drums? Al Foster? Al Foster, Ndugu, Reggie Lucas, Pete Cozy, myself. I got the gig after Michael Henderson. He decided to go on with a singing career. Right. So Miles called me because of Michael. He says, I want you to play bass and I want you to practice. I said, okay, Miles. And I want you to find some little kids and see what they playing if it's hip. I want you to steal it and then bring it to me. I said, okay, Miles. So I was playing at Bill Cosby's place in a village. I called Miles. I said, Miles, I'm in New York. I'm in New York. I'll be through. I'll be through. So Miles comes in the club, man, looking like Prince. He had on a purple, purple fucking, uh, excuse my French. He had a velvet suit on. And uh, he looked at me. He says, fat boy. And walked out the club. I was started crying. So the next day I called Miles and said, Miles, what happened? I just wanted to hear you play one note. You got a fat sound. Michael was right. You got the gig, mother. And we talked and he sent me music. For the last, that that whole month, we got together one time in New York. I went by his place on North 
West End. And uh, we rehearsed it. I was rehearsing in Chicago. Then I never forget, I get this call from his manager. Miles had a car accident. He was going to get some beer from what I understood and ran into a pole, broke his, he broke his leg. If you ever see that movie with Don Cheeto, there's some stuff they could have really cleared up in that movie. You see that movie, Don Cheeto is limping, like dragging his leg. I, I remember, I remember it's in the Miles book as well. He talks about the accident and, and right. the, yeah. Well, that's when I was with Miles. So, now dig this. I'm going back with Frank Zappa to Avery Fisher. I'm going to Avery Fisher. So the airplane stops in, uh, you know, I was on United, it stops in uh, Chicago. So I get on the airplane, I'm in business class, first class. I sit down and guess who's sitting next to me? Herbie Hancock. And Herbie say, man, Ralph, man, man, Ralph, I'm going to see Miles. I'm going to see Miles. I say, yeah, you know, I'm not, we're not going nowhere. He said, well, you can come play bass with me. That's how I got to get with Herbie Hancock. Oh, it went like that. Wow, look at you. Yeah. No, I that's an act you. of God. That's what you call divine intervention. One door opens, another one closes. One closes. That's divine inter intervention. You have to have, I feel that, this is my experience, you have to have some spirituality to be successful in music. If you don't have that, you forget it. I don't care. Everybody I know who's successful has some type of spirituality. And that that stuff happens for a reason. And I, my mother, I've even got all of the interviews and uh, uh, news clippings with Herbie and all of that. I got all that stuff. So it's, it's, I really, I truly believe in that. You know? Can I ask you about Zappa and what that experience was like? No. <laughs> Man, Frank was, he was my friend. You know, he, he was a good guy, but he wasn't no joke. Now here, I'm going to show you this real quick if you can see it. Oh, yeah. That's from uh, Santa Monica Civic with Herbie. And that was the Guerrilla Warfare Band. <laughs> Wawa Watson and, and uh, Blackbird and James Levi. We were hit. We were like sliding the family stone. Who was on drums? James Levi. Levi. Oh. James Levi, great drummer. Lives in Oakland, California. He's still here. Was Bill Summers still on it? Yeah, Bill was playing on Congress. Yeah, he's from Detroit, too. Yeah, he was playing on that gig. And Blackbird, he had two guitar players. Right now, back to Frank Zappa. Frank okay. Zappa was an intellectual and uh, disciplinarian, and uh, playing with him was like being in the army. It was like so regimental, man. It, it was like just every day the same routine. It was it was got to be too much. But what were you person? Huh? What were you working on? Shit, all of that hard-ass music he had. Are you kidding me? But I mean, like, chamber or band? What was it? Please. No, the music that he wrote, like, uh, heard it on the news and all the music from Hot Rats. That stuff's in different time meters. You got a bar seven, a bar eight, and a bar five here and there. And it's da 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 You're playing do-do-do-do-do. It's like, damn, man. Actually, it was kind of, it was a little rougher than my vision in a way, you know, but he had me playing the double bass, the bass guitar, Zappa. 
he was something else. He was something else. And the thing about it, he kept us on salary. Back then, it was so much uh, money in the music, a lot of budgets, you know. So I traveled. I did a, a Canadian tour with Zappa. I did Avery Fisher with Zappa. Uh, did a West Coast tour with Zappa. Who else was on the and, band, please? Uh, he had Terry Bozio on drums. And uh, he had, uh, we're still in touch, uh, Napoleon brought. Napoleon, we talked Nappy. Nappy was playing sax. And he had this other guy come and play bass, big somebody. This guy looked like Man Mountain Cannon. And I'm playing the bass violin with the effects pedals and shit. Oh, it's way wow. out. What was your setup? Uh, back then, I was using uh, acoustic amplifiers. I had like two uh, 360s, and then I had like a 271 top. I think it was 371, 271. Oh, yeah, and uh, Frank was a good guy. And we were friends. That's the thing about people like him. I've been so blessed to say he was my friend. And also, I have some music that Frank Zappa wrote for me that's never been played. Really? I have penmanship. And his penmanship, man, it was like, a, it's better than any computer. I've got it. I'm sitting on it. It's next to my Steve Allen stuff I got put up. He cared about copying properly. Yeah. Right. Um, but I got some. It's, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it one day. I might, in five years, auction it. Because I want my children, I don't, I don't want it to be, I've got it marked and put up, but people have to know what it is. I think it should be seen by people. I talked to Gail before she died. She told me to keep it, you know, Dweezil. I haven't talked to Dweezil in a while. I could put you in touch with some people that would be interested in it for the Zappa archive. Oh, okay. I know, the guy, I know the guy that runs the, the Zappa archive, Joe Trump. Oh, okay. All right, well, he'll love this because I got like 20 pages of music. Yeah, I, I think that's important. never been played and it's not a fly fire. Well, not you heard it here first on the broadcast, folks. There's missing Zappa parts, missing Zappa music have been discovered here. Oh, I got it. It was written for me. Yes, sir. So on a trip to Chicago, it's written for me. And it's all 64th notes and 32nd notes. At what quarter note? There isn't any quarter notes. No, I mean, what's the tempo? It's in 4-4. Uh, four, four. But how fast? 64. But I mean, you're you're literally going... Come on, man. Do I have to go to music school, please? Come on, man. Please, come on now. I don't know. Not everyone knows what you mean. Yeah, let me... Jesus Christ. I do teach at University of Michigan. Come on, man. You don't, come on, come on. I'm not, I hate to sound like Miles, but come on now. I'm not giving music lessons over the internet. <laughs> okay. Please, come well, on. I, I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you're, you're playing with, you're sort of the basis of choice in, in that area where you where, tell people where you are. Where am I? What do you mean? Where am I? What? I mean, what the, the scene that you're on, I, I see you working constantly on Facebook. I see that you're playing all over the place. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, so that Baker's Keyboard Lounge, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, some classic places and, and people call Ralph Armstrong. Oh, yeah. But, but, well, that's because 
I treat music as a business. It's a business. I don't do drugs. I don't get high. I like my cold when I'm finished playing or whatever I'm, I'm doing, but it's a business. And I'm also the uh, business uh, rep for Local 5, and I'm on executive board of the American Federation of Musicians. And I believe in that. And musicians don't want to join a union. So that means to me, when you play on television, you're not getting your residuals from it. So you're just practicing the shit. Carlos Santana is a member of Local 8. Uh, everybody, Miles is a member of 802. You know, Carlos Santana, the, you know, and all these cats, Frank was Local 47. You know, it's like you play on these TV shows, you're not getting paid if you're not in a union. So my thing is, you do this as a business. Now, at my age, guess what? I get a pension. I don't have to do nothing except sit here and look out the Detroit River for the rest of my life. I don't have to do, I don't have to take my bass out in a snowstorm to play and make the rent. That's the importance of being a union member. And this is a business. So that's when, when you, you were saying, oh, I'm in demand at the dot, but I, I handle music as a business. And that's so many musicians you got to have GoFundMe for. We got to bury them. You ain't got to do that with me, thank God. And matter of fact, pretty much everybody that's in that mobster band, we're, we're all cool, man. You know, you know, I live a good life. Here, I show you my pad. You want to see where I look? Wow. It's Detroit River. Oh, wow. Okay. Very cozy. I'm 22 stories in the sky. Is that right? Yeah, there's Jimmy. What are those bases, Ralph? Uh, the ones behind me, one is a uh, Leo Emir's. I got that. That's a Manouche. That was given to me by uh, this uh, designer, uh, Leo Emir's, in Django Reinhardt's uh, town there in France. And he, uh, that's like a gypsy instrument. That's the same kind as a jangle play. And the other one is an alien given to me by H.P. Wilfer from Warwick. I've been with Warwick for like the last 10 years. There's a lot of Warwick shit. I got, man, I got like 32 bass guitars here. And like six double basses. I got basses. This shit, this place is like a music store. That's incredible. I, You know, before I let you go, I did want to ask you if mm -hmm. you go ahead. I'm good. If you okay, if you had uh, to me a very special recording that I remember when it came out, the night that it came out, it was the lead uh, play on Allison Steele, the Nightbirds show on WNEW FM, and she said, "This is a new album from the Mavish New Orchestra. It's called Inner Worlds. This is called All in the Family." And we heard a ten at night lying in bed in, in Teaneck, New Jersey. I heard this music coming at me and I fell in love with that record because that record has such a strange and varied output. There's, it goes from the farthest distance of, of noise and space to a beautiful, you know, soulful ballad. And I, mm -hmm. that just blows my mind that in 1975, 76, that that was possible. Yeah, that was, uh, that was done in Harrowville, I believe in France. You know, when we recorded that um, recording, Inner Worlds, that was done at Frederick Chopin's estate. Was it really? Yeah. 
That's near, That's not far from Versailles, France. Yep, and down the road, um, uh, what's his name? Oh God, um, trying to think. Of. Gauguin, Gauguin lived down the street. So all of, it was like a hip neighborhood back in the day, man. But can I tell you what a great sounding record? My friends and I talk about that when we say the of the fusion records or the jazz rock records of that era. The best sounding ones are like Romantic Warrior and Inner Worlds. They really reach a, a clarity where e you hear everything. I hear your fingers. I hear what Nard is doing with his ghost notes. The drum sound is incredible. You know, the, the, the vocals are perfect. Everything is beautiful. All that guitar synth stuff is rendered beautifully. You know what's funny? You said something that's kind of funny. The ghost notes. Do you know... Uh, Joey Deanna came in the studio and said, who's playing that organ? We're like, there's no damn organ here. He heard some organ music, man. And this place was like, you know, it's a castle, it's medieval and shit. You know? Oh, stay like on the grounds of, of, you know, Chopin's estate, man. Now wait, so, so Stu didn't have an organ? No, he was like, who's playing this shit? It's like, what me? So we had like a supernatural encounter there, man. Chopin's spirit was like, hell, I'm going to join in with the session. <laughs> wow. You know? Yeah, he was a great, 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 you know, a writer, Frederick Chopin, you know. He was from, he was, you know, Polish descent, but he lived in France. It's a, a fascinating connection between Chopin and, and John McLaughlin and Mahavishnu there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause that's right. a great sounding record and are is that the drum sound in that in that room is that what that is yeah it is yeah it was great it's old castle but one other thing i want to interject since we're you know you asked me all these questions what i've been doing i recently went out uh, a lot of the members have passed i was with the group called miles smiles with uh joey de francesco alphonse muzan and my dear friend larry coriel Rick Margetza, and we traveled, man, for like four years. That was one of the greatest groups I ever worked with. And you know what's so funny about it? We all got along, man. I miss Larry so much because I was, I've was i been knowing Larry since 1975. I know when he used to drink. <laughs> and uh, Larry, you know, he came such a long way. We were just such good friends. And we were traveling. Me and Larry were playing together up until his death. That's who I was working with until Larry passed in 2017, man. And I miss those cats. I miss Alphonse, and we had so much fun, man. And in uh, 2019, I took my group. I have a group called Fusion Reunion. Uh, I have um, Galen McKinney on the drums, who played with Aretha. I have uh, Victor Wooten's brother, Reggie Wooten, is in my band. Uh, Rick Margetza from Miles, Miles Davis from Detroit. He lives in France. And um, we just had a blast, man. It's a great, great band. And oh, on the keyboard uh, over there, Carlos McKinney, who's a great writer. He produces, uh, what's that girl, Rihanna and all of that stuff. And he played with Wallace Roney. And also in that group of Miles Smiles, you know, the leader was Wallace Roney, Miles Davis too, man who just passed. So it's only me, Joey D and Rick left out of the group. Wow. 
Yeah, that was one of the finest, man. I had so much fun with that group. That group was on its way to doing some major recording. If you know, we lost three of the members, especially when Wallace died of COVID. That was that was kind of bad. And then Larry passed, you know, and Alphonse with the cancer. So I'm just blessed to be here, man. Yeah, we did lose some of the greats. You're right. Um, That's uh, a few of them. They're, they've, mm -hmm. you know, they've been uh, they've been leaving, but they left their mark. And, and certainly, oh, hey. you know, that music. Well, well, on my last recording, Detroit Rising, I got Larry Coriel on there and Alphonse was on. They're both on there. Do you have a website, Ralph, that people can find you? No, I don't have one. Just find me on Facebook. I'm going to have one done some because I got a lot of products with this book I got. I'm going to start putting that up there once I get a good publisher. People hit Ralph Armstrong up on Facebook because he does respond and he will be happy to hear from you. And he posts mm -hmm. cool stuff, too. I've seen some of your really cool pictures. <laughs> well, I'm Mark. trying to help his children. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to put something back. Yes, in the country because our educational system has been devastated. It's 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 unbelievable. I don't know. I think kind of think it was done purposely. It's hard for me to believe that, but I really I think it's been that way. I don't understand what's happening because I was uh, thinking about something the other day. I lost my elementary school teacher, Lily Welch, and I thought about something. She taught us the eight tone scale in the second grade. And I got college students that can't sing or spell out an eight-tone tetrachord or do a, a Lydian mode. It's like, what the hell is going on? I learned that in elementary school. That's you know, I played, believe it or not, I played my, my double bass in elementary school. My teacher had me bring it like, you should have seen us little kids walking with this big bass down the street. <laughs> you know, we had great educational system in the country, man. Ralph, can I, can I echo your sentiment that growing up yeah. in Teaneck in the 70s, it was one of the best education systems in the country. It was known for that. And my teachers were all cats that were from Juilliard living in the suburbs. My right. teachers were like the New Jersey percussion ensemble guys, the guys that were writing for Speculum Musicae, you know, the composers, all those guys, the Ulysses K, the great African-American yeah. composer, Teaneck, New Jersey. Oh yeah, Teaneck. In the house. I want to say that right now because you know what I'm talking about. And by the way, I'm a student at Rutgers University. I was the student and the mentee and really the, just just the the follower of Noel da Costa. Who yeah, I heard that name. Yeah. One of the most important of the African-American classical composers who brought Ron Carter and orchestra together. He brought Max and orchestra together. Oh, wow. man, That's fantastic. I got to tell you, what famous musician... Uh, fusion, jazz, rock that lives in Teaneck, New Jersey. One of my dearest friends on the planet Earth. Is it an Isley brother? They lived around the corner. <laughs> yeah, right, oh, right. Okay. Oh, man. Oh, I should know this. I know you know he lives there. You I, I should know this because it's really interesting. Teaneck does have this community of really hip musicians like, and I remember Andrew Cyril living in Little Ferry 
and cats were in Englewood. I mean, it was just like, it was a beautiful scene. Who are you thinking of? Lenny White. Lenny's in Teaneck. That's right. Of course, a good friend. Mm -hmm. Lenny. Lenny you know, one of the heavy cats. Beautiful. It's a beautiful neighborhood he lives in, too, man. Beautiful, you know. It's a great, great place, man. And, you know, you can run into, uh, there, was, I mean, there was a time I could run into Ray Drummond at this post office or, you know, Benny King at the store. And also, uh, one great Detroiter lived in T-Mac. His name was Milt Jackson. And Thad Jones. Oh, Thad, okay, Thad. I played bass with Thad, man. Thad was a wonderful guy. He was, you know, from this area. And yeah. Milt Jackson's son was in my math class in high school. Right. All righty, man. It's a pleasure, Greg. I got to get out of here soon. You know? Okay. I but just I thought you'd get a kick out of that because... When you talk about education, education is so important to me. It really and, is. You know, passing on as much information as you can and, uh, you know, making sure people know the difference between a good sound and a not so good sound and things like that, that, that we try to bring so much detail to our work. And yet, if the audience can't hear it, it I wonder sometimes, you know. Right. Oh, by the way, before I get off this... Um... I'm doing an endowment for my uh, alma mater, Cast Tech, of twenty-five thousand to go to Wayne State. So we're just getting the uh, program set up, so it'll be on the internet. So I hope people who are tuning in donate to it because I've given thousands of dollars of my own personal money to buy instruments for children and help Where them. Where they do that? Uh, it'll be up soon. We'll put the site up soon. Okay. Yep, and it's all tax deductible. It goes to Wayne State University. Doesn't go to me. It goes to the university in care of my mother, Ralph, uh, Alan, uh, Anna Armstrong and Ralph Armstrong endowment. It's tax deductible. So you write off on your tax of 501c3 and it goes to the checks to be made out to Wayne State University in care of my, my fund. You know, so that's where it's going. It's none of that hoi polloi politician bs where the money they take the money and all this crap man these guys are horrible no well they're not planetary i wish i worked for the fbi i'd be walking i'd be driving around the cities with two buses and loading up come on you know what you did <laughs> i be having so many criminals man they have to build them more jails you know corporate gangsters oh. Ralph, you, you know, you got it straight, clearly, and uh, you gave it to us straight, and we appreciate that. We appreciate you, everything you've given to music, really, man. Thank oh, you. Thank you, Greg. Bless you. You know, all those recordings stand on their own two feet to this moment. We all know it. You know, I mean, Enigmatic Ocean, uh, Cosmic Messenger, but the Mahavishnu stuff and everything else, it's just, it's iconic music to us. And, and I want you to know that, and, and we love you, and, and we love all that music dearly. I speak for, for so many people I know. Check out So Damn Happy by Aretha Franklin I played on. That was one of the funniest sessions, one of the best recordings. She, you know, not one thing I loved about her, she would tell you, she said, uh, Ralph, I just want you to, just a simple R&B song. And at the end, you go crazy. At the end of the song, I tried to play with my feet. I was playing so much. You know, and that was just a great, and we ended up laughing at the end of the session. You can hear it, you know. It's, that's she was, I, I miss that lady so much, man. She was so good to me. So that's why I wrote the book on her. 
She was nothing about love and it's nothing heinous, it's nothing negative because she was my friend and I love and I miss her. So Greg, I'm gonna have to get out of here. They're Thank calling you, Don, the gendarmes are calling me. I appreciate your time and we love having you on the broadcast and everybody, please subscribe and we'll give you so much great content like this. I mean, who gets to talk to Ralph Armstrong about bases from the 1800s, huh? Who? We do here, Ralph Armstrong, we appreciate you, man. We respect you and we love you. All right, peace, baby. Peace, Take everybody. Take care. Talk to you soon, brother. Thank you.